to me, like Nike should pay the same tax. By the way, they're going to pay less tax rate than the, the, the dry cleaner do. down the street from me. Yeah. You know, the government's getting great to Nike. Some of these other companies like FedEx, Salesforce, et cetera. FedEx doesn't exist without roads, bridges, airports. The things that this government provides, they should be paying their fair share. That's before we get to any of the economics of this. To me, it's about fairness. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? Well, on today's show, I haven't seen anyone outside of Cleveland happy with Deshaun Watson's punishment from the NFL. We'll get into all of that, as well as Will Smith's latest apology for the slap heard around the world. Then we'll dive into Democrats' breakthrough legislation on climate, health care, and taxes. We'll tell you what you need to know about the emerging threat of monkeypox. And finally, Donald Trump can't pick a favorite Eric, which is a tough break for his son and a mixed bag for two Senate candidates in Missouri. But first things first, are we moving forward? or what? Andrew Yang announced the formation of a new party last week, the Forward Party. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself why we don't already have a third party in the United States? You know, a party for all the political eclectics out there. That's because third parties are almost impossible to sustain in our current political climate. So Ricky, I know you've stand for Yang in the past. What is the likelihood that this party is successful? Well, I think that it's definitely true that our system is constructed around the duopoly and it's virtually impossible without major reform to really break into the main stage. But I think for people who haven't been following the latest news, what essentially happened is for the forward party has been around for a while, but it merged with one Democratic separate party and one Republican separate party. And so now it's it's really got a little more um a little more wind behind it, like it's actually going to be on the ballot of a good amount of states automatically based on that merger. Um, but what they're actually platforming is ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries and independent redistricting commissions. And then like taking a more moderate approach on very contentious issues like guns, abortion and climate change and actually like getting to the crux of what disagreement is rather than butting heads over it. So philosophically, I think it's I think it's interesting. And I think it's reflective of a large contingent of Americans who don't feel served by the two party system right now. And Ricky, when when they say uh, they're going to take a moderate approach to some of those issues, have they in any way released any plans on Not abortion, yet. guns, they're, anything like that? Right now, they're um, really like concentrating on democratic reform and reforming how we how we vote people into our political systems and how we can incentivize candidates that appeal to a broader base of people rather than just the most partisan people in primaries, essentially. So right now, that's what they're concentrating on. And I have a vague sense that the media has been had a certain kind of reaction to this. I think that our media is very much polarized, like our political system, yeah. and it's not really reflective of a lot of people in the middle. Like I know, obviously, a lot of people that listen to our podcast feel like they're disaffected from it. And when you look at the statistics of how Americans actually think, this is reflective of their will, generally, at least to have a third party option or something that disrupts the duopoly. 77% um, of Americans think the country's headed in the wrong direction. 62% want a third party, which is the highest that's ever been recorded, up from 40% in 2003, so just like less than 20 
years. Mm-hmm. Um, and political stress indicators are at civil war levels and half of our country essentially is registered independent. So there is a demand whether or not that means that there are immediate political legs. I'm not sure, but I think some of these reforms can be widely adopted and aren't necessarily attached to a party per se. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. The reforms like open primaries and ranked choice voting are great, but if the, only the forward party adopts those reforms, they're not going to have much of an effect mm-hmm. on the two major parties that really control our political system. I think this always comes around every few years. We say, well, we want a third party. We want another choice outside of Republican and Democrats. But then when something like the forward party comes along, it's like, well, we don't want that choice. You know, we don't mm-hmm. want what they got. And so I think it's the hardest part is really coming up with a movement that really entices people and gets people to join it. Well, I think like, yeah, in this case, the, the of the four things that they were very specific about, open primaries, ranked choice voting, ending uh, partisan gerrymandering, and national voting rights, at least two of those are very like central to democratic efforts in the Senate and the House and HB1 and other pieces of legislation. And the other two, like for instance, in New York, like ranked choice, are things that Democrats have pushed in individual states. And I think that's what you start to see from people who are critics of this party is that, or at least this effort, is that Andrew Yang was a nominee yeah. or he was a, a candidate for the Democratic nominee in the last election and then ran for the Democratic mayoral nomination most recently mm-hmm. in New York City mm-hmm. as yeah. a Democrat. Yeah. And so, you know, people like Tim Miller, a GOP strategist, he wrote like a, a pretty lengthy piece in Bulwark basically saying, look, like the test of a, of a true third party effort, and he uses Ross Pro in 1992, which is a race I'm old enough to remember, um, he uses that as a sort of litmus test to say, hey, you've got to pull double digits from each party. And he essentially says, I don't think you can do this. Well, we um, also live in a very different political moment too, though. I mean, I I think we have two elections in a row where very few people felt satisfied with either option. And so at the very least, I think that there is a more formidable chance, but it's not just presidential. They can endorse candidates yeah. on a lower level yeah. too. Mm-hmm. And point. also I think that um, a lot of the conversation about, well, can they can they win, can they lose, whatever. Like I think that regardless, they will have an impact on the duopoly because if they start pulling or at least gaining interest from moderates of each party, it will incentivize the parties to moderate a little bit. And I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing for no society no not not a bad thing but people honestly don't care much for centrism you know uh people would rather have an independent person who takes like a harp yet nuanced stances on certain issues than someone who just says i'm gonna always be in the middle i want to read this quote from uh jamil Bowie writes for the New York Times, the most successful third parties in American history have been precisely those that galvanized a narrow slice of the public over a specific set of issues. And that is very true. I mean, when you look at Theodore Roosevelt in 1912, the Bull Moose Party was all about these progressive reforms. And then if you look at a, a much more negative uh, version of this is George Wallace in 1968. He ran for president basically on a pro-segregationist um, platform and he won several states in deep south. As a matter of fact, I believe he was the last third party candidate to actually win a state in a presidential election. So the thing about the four party is they need to figure out like who they are, what their identity is going to be, and what are the the narrow, what is the niche audience that they're going to be able to bring to the table? Because if they just try to appeal to everyone, that's a great way to appeal to no one. I don't think I agree that most people don't like 
have some affinity for centrism. I mm -hmm. think, you know, historically yeah, that might be the case that they were pulling people from the fringes. But I think right now this moment is very different. And when you look at especially the political registrations of younger generations and younger people, my generation is twice as likely as the general electorate to be registered independents. Obviously, we're the future of the voting bloc. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we we also identify largely as moderates too. And not it's not just that we're independents that are on some fringe and don't feel like either party fits us. Like there is actually a really large swath of young people who I think will have more and more voting power going forward who've just lived through partisan hell for yeah. like their entire life. And I think that at the very least, there is appeal for this. There is a demand for it. I don't think it's presidential level in 2024, but. There is a contradiction between the Jamel Bowie piece and the Tim Miller piece, because Bowie is saying like, it, you need to be almost either extreme or idiosyncratic, et cetera. And then Tim Miller is using Ross Perot as the example. Now, Ross Perot was a fairly moderate candidate. Yeah. He ran on, on decreasing the deficit was his ba major issue. So I think that gives some evidence to you, Ricky, which is like the last, some people say Nader was the last successful third party, but he was only successful in affecting the outcome. Yeah. yeah. He wasn't successful in garnering pretty significant percentages of the vote. And so I think like actually Perot as the model means that there are people out there who like, or at least the, the most recent model seems to suggest that the moderate coalition is the coalition. Yeah, and although Perot was not successful, he ultimately did get the Republican Party to at least pick up some of his like yeah. buzzwords and then they mm -hmm. became the deficit guys afterwards, mm -hmm. even though they didn't actually really right. follow through with that. Right. But you know, you can affect, even if you are a third party candidate that taps into some sort of need, you can affect one of the parties because they, you know, it's it's all marketing and they'll appeal to wherever the demand is rushing. Yeah. I think like, the big question is going to be like a lot of these these third parties are largely attached to a person. So I think yeah. a big question is going to be is, is Yang that person? We've now no. had two at-bats with him. <laughs> We've now had two at-bats with him both at the national level. And I saw him up front here where he was going to quote unquote bodegas. Uh, you could look that up. <laughs> at least he wasn't uh, going to bogatas. Yeah, bogatas. Uh, I would say that I, I I have a lot of affinity for him as a person. I, I, I have yeah, serious so questions I. about whether he'll be the person who leads this forward. One thing to add here, which is why uh, Schultz wound up not eventually running and why Bloomberg, I think, ran as a Democrat, is that the, the weird quirks of the Electoral College make it really hard as a third party candidate mm -hmm. to win, because yeah. essentially what happens is, and I think most people don't realize this, if there's no majority in the Electoral College, which is almost a certainty if there's a third party candidate, a strong third party. what happens is the vote goes to the House of Representatives, but it's not a majority of uh, members of the House, but a majority of states. And so what winds up happening is, number one is no third party has any of those members, so mm -hmm. they're, they're not yeah. gonna win in that case. But two is weird quirks of the House. You have 53 House members from California, and one from Alaska, they each count the same because they each one state. Yeah. So essentially it gives the election to the GOP, which you may be happy if you're Republican, not happy if you're Democrat, but certainly doesn't help that third party whatsoever. So I think that's one of the structural barriers, I think, for third parties in this country. In the short term, but there is a long-term path where they do actually have people in the House, theoretically. Yeah, or a majority of yes. electoral votes, right? Theoretically. You, the, the best path for them is either that, what you described, or maybe even just having a candidate so popular 
that they win a majority of electoral yeah. votes. Well, moving on, the NFL is suspending Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson for six games, a long-awaited decision that goes by the book but still feels completely underwhelming. Fans are outraged. More than two dozen women accuse Watson of sexual misconduct, but he's only going to end up missing a third of the season, and he's only losing less than $350,000 out of his $230 million contract. Ravi, you're a football guy. Help me understand how a guy like Calvin Ridley loses an entire year of playing, his entire salary for that year, just for betting on a game he didn't even play in, yet Watson is given this type of punishment for quote-unquote egregious behavior. Like, make yeah. it make sense. Like, what is going on here? Well, the structure here is that there was a, a collective bargaining agreement a couple of years ago that that set this process up. And what wound up happening in this case, and this is the first test of this collective bargaining agreement between the players and the owners, is that this went to a neutral arbitrator who's a former federal judge. And she made this determination after a series of hearings. Now, the NFL still has the right to appeal this. And what's interesting about their, their right to appeal, and, and we're in the middle of this appeals window because it's a three-day window and the, this decision was handed down yesterday. My sense is uh, the NFL could appeal this and then it goes right to Roger Goodell. So they're basically appealing to themselves. So even though this process was set up with a lot of window dressing, Ultimately, Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, gets to make this decision. I think it's anybody's guess what he wants to do, although the Ringer NFL show, this is Lindsey Jones. I think uh, she had a theory as to what the motivation of the NFL is. When those reports were coming out that the league was seeking an indefinite suspension, I don't think that was because they believed that Deshaun Watson's behavior was so bad. A lot of this was kind of messaging that they wanted to at least have it out there in some sense that they were pushing for, you know, some really strict discipline. And they were going to, knowing that it probably wasn't going to happen, that they would have that kind of PR battle or knowing that there was going to be backlash to whatever the decision was, if it was six games, eight games, two games, they would be able to have that. Well, like we were we were trying to to make this a more severe punishment. Well, Ricky, so if she's right, then the NFL won't appeal this because I think essentially what she's saying is they wanted to get credit for fighting, uh, but they really didn't care about the outcome. What's your sense of this? Yeah, I mean, I obviously don't know what's going on behind closed doors there, but I think, you know, this is just yet another version of the NFL is not the court of law. And, you know, these mm -hmm. are, they have really ridiculous rules and internal contradictions, but I'm, slightly less interested in that than I am in the fact that he did settle 23 of the 24 lawsuits against him. So the Houston Texans settled 30 more on his behalf. And so I think wow. like, I don't really look at the NFL as like some pinnacle of like legal justice. We can look to the contract that mm -hmm. the Browns signed oh, yeah, with Deshaun Watson, which protects him in this case and says that he will not be financially penalized. It protects his guaranteed money. So like we don't even have to pretend like the NFL created some kind of conspiracy to, to, to get the Browns into the playoffs. I actually tend to think that Goodell probably doesn't want the Browns into the playoffs because for him, it's a small market team and this is a lot of negative publicity this year. So I think if he had his way the Browns would be out of the news cycle all year, which is why I think he kind of wanted a, a longer suspension. Yeah. But uh, my sense here is like people get a, they get confused often with what's the court of law uh, and what is an employment matter. Yeah. And I, mm -hmm. I think the, the NFL hasn't really helped matters too much by you know hiring judges and things like yeah. that and using the language of criminal justice. But in the end, the way I look at this is this is a company. And if somebody came to me and they were applying for a job 
and they were like, uh, by the way, 24 women accused me of sexual misconduct and two of those were sexual assaults. Uh, and I've settled with 23 of them. Uh, and my former employer uh, settled 30 of them. Um, I would be like, yeah, okay, you can go work somewhere else. And I think that that's not, you know, that's not, yeah, that's not me saying that. I don't believe in due process. Yeah. I believe that there's criminal proceedings and, you know, the Harris County district attorney couldn't get a grand jury to agree to uh, charges against Watson and another county had similar difficulties. So like there's, I, there's different standard in criminal justice than there is in employment matters. This is why just to open up a whole big can of worms, I felt a certain way about Kavanaugh, which was I viewed that as an appointment matter. This is as egregious a, a body of record to me where I'm just like the NFL, of course, has the right to say this person shouldn't play. Now, what they do with that right is, is up, up for speculation here. They're sending the message that sexual misconduct is not that big of a deal if you're extremely talented. Right. I mean, Deshaun Watson is an extremely talented quarterback, one of the most talented probably in the league, which is why he has this huge five-year contract that is the biggest guaranteed money in, in league history. And they're basically saying if you're talented enough, you can kind of get away with this stuff. Well, I think this is what happens when we moralize like a game and industry just based on like bashing your heads together and stuff like <laughs> like there's so much violence and like yeah. i mean there's a huge history of domestic violence yeah, and huge. like players doing yeah. kind of awful things i just think i'm going to the xfl i'm, I'm done i'm done with the <laughs> nfl I'm, I'm going to a different league i'm taking my money elsewhere as long as we're talking about lengthy bands four months ago the former fresh prince slapped a comedian who was once called the funniest man alive at the oscars of all places now, Will Smith has been pretty quiet regarding his assault on Chris Rock, but after months of reflection and a 10-year ban from the Academy Awards, Smith is finally attempting to address the incident. He just posted a six-minute video giving an apology that was more detailed than the short one he gave last March. I am deeply remorseful, and I'm trying to be remorseful without being ashamed of myself, right? I'm human, and I made a mistake and I'm trying not to think of myself as a piece of shit. Um, so I would say to those people, I know it was confusing. I know it was shocking, um, but I, I promise you, I am uh, deeply devoted and committed to putting light and love and joy into the world and you know, if you if you hang on, I promise we'll be able to be friends again. He seems like he's remorseful for what he did. He claims that his wife, Jada Pickett Smith, didn't tell him to do it because that was a big rumor. Uh, he didn't really go into all the details on why he did it. The, you know, whatever snapped in him. He didn't really go into all of that. He said he reached out to Chris Rock to try to apologize to him face to face. And Rock wasn't ready to talk. Uh, but the big question is, does a video like this help or hurt him in this really delicate moment on, on when he's trying to get his career back well i'm on a constant tirade against cancel culture and believing that like one moment in someone's life defines them obviously it was really despicable and obviously he seems remorseful and if that was like a pattern or something that happened again we'd have to have another conversation about yeah. it but for me i'm not I, I don't believe in throwing away a person because of a mistake and and i think that you always need to extend grace so that's kind of the bottom line same yeah i think like and, and and to your point like there's there's some kind of uh 
intellectual underpinning that's missing that connects things like criminal justice reform with things that are acts that happen in the public square, mm -hmm. right? Like I started this nonprofit called Second Chance Studios, which helps people coming out of the prison system do digital medium. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I found interesting in building partnerships is that a lot of my friends on the left had no problem whatsoever uh, signing up to be partners for Second Chance Studios because the left, I think, buys into the sort of intellectual underpinnings of helping people coming out of the prison system, including people who may have committed murder, armed robbery, like really hurt people's lives in ways that sometimes are permanent, right? Yeah. Now, the left feels comfortable with that, but then uh, the when you get into the case of somebody saying the wrong thing, or in this case, doing something that may or may not have been criminal, but wasn't criminally charged and there weren't mm -hmm. charges brought, we don't have a way to connect those two things to say like, well, what does it mean for Will Smith to get back into polite society? And I've dealt with this now a few times. Like I have friends of mine who've been quote unquote canceled for things and trying to get those very people to be supported by those other people on the left who support murders yeah. is like, um, you know, like it, it, there's no consistency. Yeah. So to me, I think like we need to build a gradation of like, all right, you did something really horrible. You served time in prison. Maybe you come out. We as a society need to support you. And then you say something horrible or you do something horrible. Uh, like in the case of, of, of Will Smith, what is your path back to redemption? We don't have a language as a society, and I wish we mm -hmm. had some. Yeah, I think this video was more helpful than, say, like when Alec Baldwin came out after his incident and did an interview, because in that particular interview, he just kind of refused to take any responsibility, tried to kind of pass the buck a little bit. You know, and obviously those are two different cases. Or Alec Watson. We just talked about Watson. His When he was paraded out in front of the Cleveland Browns, he didn't admit to anything. Uh, yeah, I can't get too far into detail because there's an ongoing investigation still. But I can say that with this now day and age, um, especially with my age group, social media is a big business part um, that, that goes into it. So that's you know a factor into it. But as far as the details, I can't get too far into it because there's an investigation going on. But hopefully, you know, once everything is resolved, I can speak freely on it. You know, and I know he's probably trying to shield himself from legal Legally, liability legal or whatever. Liability, yeah. But he like in no way apologized. In no way said he's seeking treatment for anything. So like, I think this is a pretty good example. Obviously, it's a little messy, but it's like, it, I like that. That means it's like not as practice. Yeah. You know, yeah. it seems a little bit more real. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we need to be on the lookout for an apology video from Joe Manchin to Senate Republicans because Joe is officially on board with Democrats' new spending package, once dubbed Build Back Better, now called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. The historic legislation is much skinnier than Biden's original proposal, yet it still constitutes the largest investment in clean energy in American history. It also comes with policies to lower health care costs and increase corporate taxes to help reduce inflation. Let's hear from Joe Manchin on why he changed his mind here. I never could get to Build Back Better, which was a three and a half trillion dollar spending bill. This is a four hundred billion dollar investment bill and everything my Republicans talked about reducing the amount of uh, uh, debt that we have. We're paying down three hundred billion dollars first time in 25 years. They've got to like that. Mm -hmm. And next of all, they wanted more energy. I want more energy. We're going to be producing more energy. There's an agreement that we're going to be drilling and doing more that we can mm -hmm. to bring more energy to the market that reduces mm -hmm. prices. They like that. Let me ask and there's going to be a, a streamlining of permitting, John. They got to like that. So well, I'm hoping they just take a cool off, take a good look at the bill. Ricky, I know you have 
a few problems before we get into like the provisions of this uh-huh. bill. I know you have a few problems with the fact that they're even calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, I would say before I even get into that issue with the title, I have an issue with the fact that this is like a smaller bill and it's 725 pages still. And I don't, I think there's just something so broken with our system that we're talking about how one moderate Democrat needed to be like hounded down to sign this enormous package of completely unrelated things like healthcare and climate and the deficit and inflation. And why, like, why can't we address these piece by piece and actually compromise on them rather than like talk to one guy from West Virginia that represents the tiniest little fraction of our entire country and figure out like what the, future of our deficit looks like on the basis of that like i just think first off now that i've gotten that off my chest i think our system well yeah i can, I can give ridiculous. you an answer to that. i think it's the filibuster like i think the fact that you need 60 votes to pass anything and that the the 50 who've been blocking everything uh represent far fewer people in this country than the 50 who support this piece of legislation and they will stop anything for political reasons that they can by and large like it's you have to like work so hard to get every little piece done and like this was only possible through reconciliation yeah which to me is kind of part of why i think getting people who aren't necessarily allied with one party or another into Congress is a healthy thing. But on the Inflation Reduction Act title, um, Wharton did, Penn's Penn's Business School, arguably the best in the country, um, did a model that found that the the effect on inflation will be basically zero or statistically insignificant from zero. So I think the title's really misleading. Mm -hmm. And that the fact that that's what Manchin gets to like kind of ride on is ridiculous <laughs> to me. But, um, you know, there are actual things that I like about the bill. The fact that it reduces the deficit, which people are obviously concerned about. And I yep. think that that could have been the title of it, the deficit reduction bill. And people would like that. And he could go up and say that. Yeah, but, but that's like, not sexy. Deficit reduction. Yeah, that's it's like, also you not know, a lie, yeah. which is nice. But we're talking about politicians here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I, I agree that the, the, the deficit piece here is huge. $300 it's billion, huge. Dollars, yeah, absolutely. Uh, according to the Committee for Responsible Budget. Uh, and this would reduce the, the deficit uh, more than any other legislation since 2011. This is a big deal. And, yeah. you know, generally speaking, Congress, and this is bipartisan with the exception of Bill Clinton, uh, has been you know, presidents in Congress have been really bad at reducing the deficit. Yeah, uh, there are notable things in here just to set it from a bullet pointed perspective before we get into like the the nitty gritty here. I like this legislation. I'll just say uh, uh, up front, in part because of the deficit reduction, but in part because of some of the other things in here. But uh, there's interesting things on the spending and on the revenue side. So on the spending side, there's a host of energy and climate provisions in here that experts say may reduce carbon emissions by 40% by 2030. That's from 20, 2005 levels. And that would be pretty damn close to Biden's 50% reduction target by that same period. It also lowers ACA premiums for the Affordable Care Act for millions of Americans. On the raising side, so this is actually an interesting bill because it does more on the, on the sort of taxation and revenue side than anything else. 15% corporate minimum tax. It allows Medicare to negotiate the prices of drugs. There's 80 billion to the IRS for increased enforcement and it closes the carried interest loophole. So there's a lot going on here and I think we're gonna take this piece by piece, but I think this is a pretty sizable piece of legislation if it passes. 
Uh, you'll obviously be hearing about this, whether it's Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is. This will probably be something that they run on. I don't know if we need to give the IRS more power, but on the climate front, I just think it's interesting because there's all this money, $260 billion going to clean energy tax credits, $80 billion in new rebates for electric vehicles. So Musk gets a win there. $1.5 billion in rewards for cutting methane emissions. But to get Manchin's vote, they had to sign off on new oil and gas leasing in the Gulf of Mexico and off the coast of Alaska. So even though, yeah, there's going to be some reduction of emissions, there was still a, a focus on fossil fuels here. They also took out some stuff that they were going to do to uh, combat, you know, uh, coal mining and things like that. They took a lot of that stuff out because, you know, coal mining is, is in West Virginia. That's uh, the bread and butter there for Manchin's uh, constituents. So I just think it's interesting because there is a lot of compromise here to, to get something done. Yeah, there's even some stuff tucked in here that I think is going to benefit the nuclear industry like there's you know they have uh this rule that says that if you use federal land for renewables you have to use it for other forms of energy which includes oil and gas there's a specific mandate in there that a lot of people are interpreting is going to lead to a requirement that they build nuclear power plants there's a whole debate about that which i won't get into uh and that mandate includes that the government has to create 25 priority projects on federal lands and it has to have a mixture of different types of energy. And it also, the way that they incent- they use the tax credits is they've now extended them to allow them to be used more long-term, which a lot of people believe will be beneficial to technologies like clean heart hydrogen, direct air capture, and advanced nuclear energy. So that's great as a, you know, I think we've talked about nuclear a lot here as like probably the cleanest form of energy with the, the least amount of downsides. But I do like these tax credits, like 7,500, uh, for electric vehicles, but with a cap, $150,000 individual income, $300,000 for a household. So it's not like, you know, that hedge fund manager's Tesla, you know, um, there's a ton of incentives for people to upgrade their houses. It seems like they cleaned up a very clunky process for tax incentives within business on the mm-hmm. business side. So they go to the consumer side and then they do the business side. The way that the business tax credits were, were structured before is that they were super complicated and often had to be run through investment vehicles or banks because of the compliance and the complexity of it all, this greatly simplifies it. And so, and also uh, it it opens up flexibility for new technologies as they emerge. So it's way less specific about like, hey, it's got to be this precise type of technology that could be outdated within a few years. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see more investment in the nuclear front, especially since we're putting $369 billion towards energy in general. And there was like, the only real hard number I could find was $700 million that they allocated for HALEU, which is like a next generation um, way to produce nuclear energy that only Russia can do right now. And so that's actually a national security threat potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, But like that, it just almost doesn't even seem enough to me within the percentage of things like I'm always consistently disappointed as someone who does feel that we need to find more sustainable options that this one is always like the least invested in which is just too bad I think it's possible and there are going to be a lot of analyses written about this Uh, it's possible that the figure that you gave about like how much is going to renewables Mm. includes nuclear that's what I'm on the lookout for there's not there's not a lot of clarity like in general on how much each source is potentially going to benefit. Right. But what about this idea? They have this 15% corporate minimum tax, and this would apply to all U.S. corporations that earn more than $1 billion in profits per year. There's a lot going on now saying that that if you raise taxes on these rich corporations, which has been a long time a Democratic talking point, that that's going to get passed down to us as the consumers. They're going to raise prices yeah. on us. They're going to cut wages for their workers. Is there any truth to that? And is there anything that we can do to maybe stop corporations from doing well, that? Well, let me just explain what it is before we talk about like that claim, which is 
So this is a 15% corporate tax on companies that make a billion or more in profits a year. Now, those companies are already supposed to pay 21% in taxes, but dozens of Fortune 500 companies don't pay any taxes at all because they write off tons of things like R&D, et cetera. Nike, for instance, in 2020 paid no taxes, despite the fact that they had 16.24 in gross profits and 2.5 billion in net profits. So to me, like Nike, should pay the same tax. By the way, they're going to pay less tax rate than the, the, the dry cleaner down the street for me. Yeah, I think they should pay the same t- tax rate as you know mom and pop businesses do. Now, Ricky, I know you'll say let's lower the taxes of mom and pop businesses. I would agree on that, but I think yeah. everybody should pay into this government, this country that's so good to us. Uh, and to me, you know, the government's doing great to Nike. You know, some of these other companies like FedEx, Salesforce, et cetera. FedEx doesn't exist without roads, bridges, airports. The things that this government provides, they should be paying their fair share. That's before we get to any of the economics of this. To me, it's about fairness. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are different loopholes that corporations get through. Some are more valid than others. Like there's issues with net losses over several years, but you might profit one year, but right. you're still in the red or research and development, which actually can be beneficial to society. But I am I do agree that there are some loopholes that need to be patched up. And then to your question, Corey, about whether this is increasing taxes on um, individuals, it's so I think what happened is there's a report from the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is bipartisan, that said that it would increase the burden on on normal Americans by fifty four billion dollars. And then conservative media kind of had a heyday with that and took that as a tax increase. That was a direct increase and therefore would be in violation of Joe Biden's promise not to raise taxes on people making less than four hundred thousand. But in the end, this is kind of like those costs trickling down to consumers. And so that would end up costing, based on this one model, $16 billion from households making less than $200,000 and $14 billion from households making between $200,000 and $500,000 a year. But that also doesn't take into account that there are some tax benefits that yeah. these households may get. It depends person to person, and that's kind of hard to parse out. Right. But this is, you know, these are all just based on projections. But but this projection seems to say, yes, there will be some sort of cost to the consumer. But, you know, it's one of those things where it's such a complex system that we don't actually know exactly, no, exactly what that's what going that to be. be. But yeah, it is worth mentioning that that committee is uh, bipartisan, but the request for that particular data came only from Republicans. And, and as I think you alluded to, only applied specifically to the corporate tax. It didn't include, yeah. as you said, all the other things. And so to me, like, I would love to score the entire bill. Yeah. Uh, and like to be clear, like what they're saying, and, and I, you said this, but I just want to underline it, is that this is not increasing taxes on those people. What they're saying is it might lead to net job losses or people's or wages. Wage being, decreases yeah. probably more uh, likely than anything else. But what I'd want to know is like, show me the math on these companies. Now I know that like, I'm not saying that the joint you know, committee on taxation is wrong, et cetera. But I'd be interested in going company by company. Like, tell me why a company that made 16 billion gross profits the year of the pandemic and it made 2.53 billion net profits during a pandemic and now is poised to make three times that this year in net profits is going to be cutting jobs because they have to pay more taxes. That's one company. You know? But I think if you're looking at corporations as a whole across the board, that's, yeah. you know, they're, those numbers aren't as staggering in every other case. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. I think like, to me, it's like, well, like maybe those companies, like we're not, you know, the government shouldn't be subsidizing jobs, right? So I think in this case, like to me, like 
I generally speaking don't think we should use our tax code. This is why I was against the Amazon deal in, in New York was not because I didn't want Amazon to come here. It's because I don't think that we should be lowering taxes for this big company and not that one in order to incentivize jobs, which is essentially what this leaving the current system in place does. Because if you don't take advantage of those tax breaks, then you're essentially at a net disadvantage to your competitors. And if you're the mom and pop dry cleaner, you're playing by one set of rules while everybody's playing by another set of rules. Like that mom and pop dry cleaner, if they paid zero taxes, they'd probably hire more people too. Yeah, we, all, we always hear this notion that if you if you put taxes or hire, raise taxes on bigger corporations, then that's going to get passed down to the consumer. But isn't that just the fault of the greed of those corporations? I mean, why should the economy be rigged in favor of these big corporations, but then screw all, you know, all of us little guys over? I mean, it's like we're just begging from crumbs from the top at a certain point. Yeah, I mean, I also don't blame corporations for taking advantage of tax incentives that they've been given, but I think it's just an indictment more largely on the fact that our entire tax code is based on like this tit for tat of like bribing different people for mm -hmm. different reasons Agreed. to do different things. And like, so at least this has like a minimum tax that's trying to yeah, make 15%. it a little more clear. Yeah. Like I, I don't, I don't, I'm not an expert on the tax code. I don't know if I like 15% to be honest, but I like the idea of like, here's a metric that yeah. needs to be hit versus here are all the weird loopholes that you can only access if you can afford the right connections and lawyers and right. accountants to find them for you. It's ridiculous. Well, there's a lot of things in this new bill. Um, I don't think we're gonna be able to get to all of it, but at the same time, it is it is good to see a little bit of compromise in Washington. And we'll see if this does anything for the Democrats as far as the midterms, uh, because they, they definitely need something. Monkeypox is spreading at a rate that's surprising most experts. The disease, a relative of smallpox, is circulating widely outside of Africa for the first time, and it's mainly affecting the LGBTQ plus community. The World Health Organization has officially declared a global health emergency, and here in New York City, our local health authorities have done the same. So, Ricky, what are the latest numbers here, and how concerned should people be? Um, so the latest numbers right now are 5,189 confirmed cases in the U.S., 1,300-ish uh, of which are in New York, uh, concentrated in New York City. So we are in an epicenter here for sure, but those are relatively low numbers, and it is a contained threat to certain parts of the population. 99% of the cases have been detected in men, 95% in gay men or men that have sex with men is the specific demographic. And so this is a a small community of people who are experiencing this. Unfortunately, we do have the smallpox vaccine that we have stockpiles of, which will protect people against this. And so we have the capacity and the potential to do a a targeted vaccination campaign and hopefully wipe this out. Uh, there is this debate about whether or not it's an STD because a lot of it is spreading through sexual contact, but it can also spread through any type of close contact that's not sexual. And it can also be transferred in bedding, on tiles, different things like that. So just because it's concentrated to that community, I, I would warn people that we we don't want to get into this thinking where it's like, oh, only gay no, men can get it. Not. No, I'm not I'm saying not you're saying, saying yeah, that. I'm just saying I don't want us to get into this thinking, uh, you know, just, you know, in, especially in New York City, that only this community can get it. So we we, everybody who's not a part of the community doesn't have to take it seriously. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. And, and I, I feel like I there's, just, a, I feel like there's not you, but I do feel like there there are some people who are thinking like that, and that could be disastrous. Well, I think a lot of health 
officials are saying if you're in the general community, you don't have to be acutely concerned about this, like something like COVID based on the way that it spreads. Mm -hmm. But that also doesn't mean that we can't all be kind of outraged by the fact that our vaccination rollout has been completely bungled. Mm -hmm. And we have hundreds of thousands of vaccines that we own that have been in the Netherlands that people who are trying to, or yeah, sorry, in Denmark, that people who are trying to do the right thing and get themselves vaccinated and protect themselves against this can't access. Clinics are turning people away. Like that's absolutely Mm -hmm. outrageous. I'm just talking about what the medical community is advising for people as a whole right now. Yeah. yeah, and I think like the you know obviously we don't think of disease as only like hey, like if it affects me then and if it doesn't affect me I'm fine. Like I think we all like accept that like obviously if it if if it were forever contained to a population that we don't belong to, it's still so a moral awful, imperative. Those are our neighbors, those are our friends, those are our Absolutely. family members. Uh which it probably won't be contained to that community, but even if it was. Now, I think people should listen to this daily episode from last week like i think this is maddening like they do it justice in a full like 30 to 40 minute episode where they go through like what you talked about like why was it that we have these vaccines they weren't being used now the the amount of vaccines is small relative to the u.s population but could have been targeted to the most at risk people who are dying for urban centers specifically yeah Yeah. you have like you know long wait times uh from people who you know are in risk categories looking for the stuff they they chronicle how difficult the testing has been which lord knows we should have gotten right after covid um and then uh they also talk about treatment they interview somebody who you know was two weeks into very severe symptoms and finally got treatment and it's excruciating to listen to. And I think what they conclude, and I think it's an interesting conclusion, is that there are two problems here. I would add a third, but there are two you know, diagnoses of the issues are number one, that federalism in the US mucks things up in a way that like states aren't reporting data to the federal government and yeah. all this, and we have a patchwork of different reactions. I think that's valid in some ways. They talk about funding, which sure. But third is I think like some basic competence. Like there's our, our, our bureaucracies aren't functioning properly. Like if you listen to that episode, you're like, like I'm not sure more money was the issue when it came to the the, the vaccines, like yeah. they existed. So yeah, the question was green lighted so they can the come The question here, was that you know? there was FDA red tape and they hadn't inspected facilities there because of COVID, but then their European counterparts had. And I think there comes a point where if you're an American citizen and your FDA hasn't been there, you can you should be able to sign a waiver and say, well, mm-hmm. I would like to take what the European counterpart approved. Like yeah. it's, it's you're taking away people's autonomy to be able to make decisions with their own body, with vaccines that are stockpiled exactly for a situation like this. I think there's a fourth reason why there's been such a delayed response to monkeypox. The reality is this is starting to look a lot like how it looked in the early days of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Because this is only, as of right now, really affecting one community, discrimination against that community could be used as an excuse to not act more quickly on mm-hmm. this. You know, And I think that, again, that's what we saw you know, for almost the entire decade of the 1980s with HIV AIDS. And it wasn't until people you know, found out you could get it from needles, you could get it from blood transfusions, and people, uh, you know, cis straight people started getting it in the late 80s. Then they were like, oh, now this is a crisis we have to do something about. But the Reagan administration uh, did practically nothing to 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 safeguard against or to do anything about the HIV AIDS ep- epidemic when it was uh, at its height in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I would also say that there's another factor at play here, at least to some degree, which is that because there was so much stigma that came from AIDS and HIV back in the day, there was 
a hesitance to talk about this and the statistics about who were who was being impacted and actually inform people and say yeah. right now this is within this community which i don't think there's anything wrong with saying those numbers because that mm -hmm. those are just the numbers it's not a moral judgment it's yeah. not an ethical thing it's important thing. for people in it's that community to, say, to know that yeah and i think that there's been some shying away from talking about it over fears of stigmatizing which i understand but at the same time it's you know you want to protect people's health and and make sure that you are being honest and open with people. So moving on to our last story, just when you think someone can't surprise you anymore, they remind you why they still got it. Donald Trump just endorsed two candidates for Senate in Missouri at the same time by just saying he supports Eric and never clarifying which one he meant. On the eve of tomorrow's Missouri primary, Donald Trump released an endorsement in this contest between Eric Greitens and Eric Schmidt. Trump says he is endorsing Eric. I'm not kidding. This is actually what Trump's endorsement press release says. I'm therefore proud to announce that Eric has my complete and total endorsement. And yes, both Eric's have enthusiastically accepted that endorsement tonight. <laughs> Absolutely unreal. Some people thought it was a mistake, but Politico is now reporting that this was completely purposeful, a way for him to avoid having to pick this way, whichever one of them wins, he backed them. Ravi, what do you think about this strategy? I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, if it's not obvious to anybody who's listening to this podcast. I also think that who the senator is from Missouri is a really important question. Those things aside, very important caveats, this is really funny. <laughs> uh, like, I, I think he is often funnier than I wish he was. Sometimes it's humor that I think is mean-spirited. Yes, uh, yes. This, in a way, I think is, I wouldn't call it straight mean-spirited. I would say it is... It is sociopathic, but but <laughs> but directed at people I don't necessarily care too much about in this case. So I don't. I I did laugh at it. I at first thought it was a mistake. I think the fact that he called both of these people to tell them that it was an endorsement, which That's is reported what, by, by political. their own reports, by their so, own reports. Yeah. So we we're not sure if he actually did that. And also, just to no, clarify, no, I think political, wasn't political saying that there were sources at Bedminster because they were like they were talking about the, the movings of his daughter-in-law and all of this and his justification being that he was concerned about Greitens's, you know, indiscretions. And yes, that, yes. Like and his opponent was yep. going to be, you know, the, the Democratic nominee in all likelihood, this is today, the election happening is is a sort of heir to the Bush fortune and Trump was concerned about that. Yeah. So I think that was what all the reporting was saying that this, and the fact that he hasn't corrected it is evidence. Yeah, that that's this was, evidence that it's probably, yeah. he really did this. Like in what world do you see something like this happening where he endorses two different people without having to name which one and he puts the eric in all caps was he talking about his son this is this is brilliance on a political strategic level this is just brilliance the best part is that there's a third long shot eric in the race too so there's eric mcelroy as well in the same so race in the same race this is another eric um but yeah and i also when you look at the statement itself there's really no ambiguity to me that he, this was on purpose and it wasn't meant to be ambiguous. He says, I trust the great people of Missouri on this one to make up their own minds. So he's oh, not, wow. he's he's so just he like, go for it. There. Either wow. one is, just vote one, Eric. one accepted his endorsement saying he's America first and the other one said he was a MAGA champion. So either way, Trump's fine. Yeah, so which we'll, one said we'll mega it. champion? The um, former the former Greitens. governor, Greitens. Yes. Greitens. Yeah, who yeah. has some very interesting. We'll keep an eye on it. I, you but. know, we're we're taping this on early on Tuesday. The the race is tonight, so so we know Eric is going to win. Though. Eric will Eric will win, win, and this will be another you know point for Trump because how do we score it? Yeah, how, how do we score it? Does yeah. it does he get like a half point for this or? I think it's a point either way. That was his whole goal. Yeah. Yep. Oh man, you just. 
Sometimes you just have to, sometimes people just make it look so easy. All right. And finally, Robbie, we got a listener comment about our coverage of the Amazon uh, One Medical story we did last week. Yeah. Thoughtful email from a listener, a friend of mine, uh, and talking about we had covered the One Medical Amazon merger a few episodes ago. We'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, but a friend of mine uh, chimed in. He's a customer of One Medical for a while. And he said, uh, he listened to our podcast. He says, a customer there is for many years. Here's what I think you missed and a possible link to education. He says, uh, One Medical's primary advantage isn't nice offices. It's that you don't have to sit in nice offices very long. Their telehealth service means you don't always have to go in at all. Uh, but when you do have to go, if your appointment is for 1130, it starts at 1130, not 1131. And you see your results uh, you see your doctor for a full 30 minutes, not the five minutes you get in a normal office. So I'll pause there and say that that's different. So I do want to acknowledge that. That certainly seems significant. And he says, if you need an appointment tomorrow, you get one. He talks about also the speed and access to records. And he talks about this and basically analogizes it to like what a lot of us were doing in the charter school space back in the day, which is like the promise of charters back in the day was that we would be more innovative. And what he basically said was that's kind of true, but not really. It's basically like incremental improvements to people's yeah. experience, like not like some kind of massive new shiny object innovation that's going to revolutionize everything about healthcare, but just making things 1% better across a whole bunch of different systems so that maybe the whole experience is 70% better. Well, we want to thank that listener for their comment. We want to thank you all for listening and watching the show. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producers are Ravi Gupta and Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey, Wes Parnell, and Ariane Misra. Studio support by Moyo Adeolu. Editing and sound design by Monica Espedia and Joe Engelbrecht. Video editing by Ava Maldonado. We will see you guys next time. <laughs>